Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. How you doing? Doing well, thank you. Um, today is the day of the Yale commencement. On that day, Professor Amar puts on his professorial hat, as he does many days, but he does so literally on that day. And that's appropriate for our discussion today because um, today we're going to review a work of scholarship that uh, Professor Amar has produced together with uh, his brother, Vic Amar, another professor, in fact, the dean uh, of the uh, law school at the University of Illinois College of Law. Um, And I think that in many ways this is going to be the most important episode or series of episodes that we've had on a Marcus Constitution. You know, we've had about 75 or so episodes so far, and we've been privileged to build up a, a substantial audience. Uh, and, you know, we don't uh, make any money off this podcast. It's free to you. And Andy, and not only do we not make any money, you're out of pocket, and thank you for all that. Um, uh, you, uh, so the audience should actually know that, that Andy um, uh, finances this um, just as a, as a gift to you all and, and, and to me and to our country. So thank you, Andy. Well, my pl- it's my pleasure and honor to do so. And why do we do it? Well, in, in large part to you know, get Professor Amara's ideas out there to stimulate conversation and civic engagement. Um, but today, uh, it's a little bit more than that. It's a warning. And it's, we're sounding the alarm. Okay, now not to over-dramatize, but let's go back for a moment to the beginning of our podcast, episodes one, two, and three. We had a, a series called Bullets Dodged. And the idea there was we were in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. And various things might have happened during that period of time that didn't happen, like, for example, the death of one of, of, of Joe Biden, God forbid, you know, or something like that. And we talked about some of the problems in the lame duck system, in the Electoral Count Act, in the Electoral College, all various things like that, certain structural problems, presidential succession. Um, Especially presidential succession. You, you, you vote, let's say, for the Democrats, and because of some weird glitch, you end up with the Republicans who lost um, because of a, of a death that could be, maybe even be um, terrorist-initiated um, or... Um, initiated by a madman who, who gets agitate, who is agitated by one of the political parties. Wow. That, right. that, those were the bullets dodged. And then, of course, we had January 6th, and that was horrific, but um, eventually uh, Joe Biden was inaugurated, and to some degree there was a degree of, of exhaling. But in fact, there was a greater degree of constitutional peril that we went through that meant, then I think many of us appreciated. You know, we talk about some of these scenarios, but suppose you had voted and your vote didn't count, not because of some fictitious fraud, but because a representative of yours, perhaps, that you had elected, decided that your vote shouldn't count. And suppose this happened on a massive scale. Well, this is the sort of thing that we're going to be talking about today. And actually, we were in danger of some of this possibly happening during that 2020 fall and winter. So, Akil, why don't you take us back to then uh, to that time and sort of go over the events that happened in the legal world that brought me to say these, these things. Thanks, Andy. And these are some legal theories that were being spun out by folks like John Eastman, picked up by folks like Ted Cruz. And in a nutshell, they were trying to empower state legislatures to jump back into the action under a a theory that goes all the way back to opinions, not, not the majority, but a concurring, an influential concurring set of opinions way back in 2000, the year 2000 in Bush versus Gore. 
So this theory being pushed by folks like John Eastman and Ted Cruz goes under the name Independent State Legislature Theory. Back in the Biden-Trump election, here's what happened early on, and almost no one noticed it, but, but Andy, you and I did, as did Vic. It's the week of October 26th. The election is just a few days away, and there are a couple of cases that are sort of percolating and coming up to the, possibly to the Supreme Court for review. One came up from Wisconsin on October 26th, another one a couple of days later from Pennsylvania on October 28th. And in this window, it seemed at first on the 26th, I'm not going to go into all the the, the details blow by blow, but on the 26th of October, it seemed to be the case that Brett Kavanaugh was willing to join three um, strong conservatives, Justices Thomas, Clarence Thomas, uh, Sam Alito, and Neil Gorsuch. On the 26th, it seemed to be the case that Brett Kavanaugh was ready to join these three conservatives in reviving a certain aspect of a concurring opinion in Bush versus Gore called independent state legislature theory. I'll I'll tell you the details in just a minute. And, And then two days later, Kavanaugh apparently blinked, and he pulled away. And why is four so important? Because four suffices to get the Supreme Court to hear a case. And, and then you went away from um, the necessary five to decide a case. So between October 26 and October 28, there was a serious possibility that Bush versus Gore was going to make, a certain part of Bush versus Gore was going to make a big Come back. What part of Bush versus Gore? A part of Bush versus Gore, which the United States Supreme Court was going to jump in in a closely contested and in a swing state, Pennsylvania in particular, was going to jump in and smack down the state Supreme Court, just as they did three three justices, especially in Bush versus Gore in two thousand, smack down the state Supreme Court on a theory that the state Supreme Court was improperly intruding upon the role that the U.S. Constitution gave to the state legislature. So what, you say? I'll I'll give you the, the details in just a minute. If they had done that, well, then after the election, building on this ruling, reviving, bringing back from the dead, you know, Bush versus Gore, which most of us had thought was kind of dead and buried because it was so embarrassing at the time, but, but we didn't realize that there was this subterranean movement underfoot in serious conservative circles, right-wing circles, important federal society circles, to try to bring back, uh, revive this aspect of Bush versus Gore. And one of the justices, actually, who had all, has always subscribed to this, is still on the court, Clarence Thomas. So if they had brought back this part of Bush versus Gore, well then, after election day, Suppose the state legislature of Pennsylvania said, ah, well, we have this new ruling from the Supreme Court saying we are the decision makers under the Constitution, not the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court has to butt out. The Pennsylvania Constitution, um, which talks about right to vote, has, is utterly I- irrelevant. The Pennsylvania State Constitution, which talks about the role of state judges and protecting the right to vote, should just be disregarded. We want to jump back in, and we are going to now say who really won in the election in Pennsylvania. And we're going to pick the electors for ourselves. And, and then if the Supreme Court said, oh, right you are, independent state legislature doctrine, well, that, that's exactly the sort of thing, you see, that John Eastman and Ted Cruz were trying to pull off, and not just in Pennsylvania, but in five or so other states that basically were presidentially blue but um, have read state legislatures, Republican-controlled state legislatures. It's not just about Pennsylvania. It would have been about Wisconsin and Michigan and Arizona and Georgia, Nevada. Going forward, uh, we could talk about the state of, of Virginia for 2024. So we came perilously close in this little window to reviving Bush versus Gore, and if Bush, a certain aspect of Bush versus Gore, and if that aspect had been revived, 
oh, all the events between Election Day and January 6th might have played out very differently indeed with competing electors, some picked by state legislatures, and completely different set of scenarios. Now, what happened in between those two dates, October 26th and October 28th? Well, Kavanaugh flinched. Apparently, he, he seemed to pull back. Amy Coney Barrett actually joins the court. She's sworn in on October 27th. Oh, and there's one other thing that happens on October 27th. Akhil Amar, Vic Amar, and Neil Katyal, all of whom have been on this podcast, only one of us on every episode, and, and Neil on a couple and Vic on, on several. The three of us wrote an op-ed, published an op-ed in the New York Times going ballistic and saying this is absolutely outrageous, um, this, this effort to revive Bush versus Gore. We asked our friend Jesse Wegman, who's been on the podcast on a couple of episodes, to help us get it placed. He did. I have no proof whatsoever because I don't have any leak, um, <laughs> leaks from, from the court. You know, no proof whatsoever that that op-ed made a difference. But if it did, oh, wow. Um, or even if it didn't, still bullet-dodged, Big bullet dodge, um, but not forever because there are forces underfoot, audience should know, that will try to bring back independent state legislature ideology in 2024. And just to um, anticipate, we'll, we'll give you the details. If reddish Republican legislatures in states that are presidentially blue, such as Virginia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and the like. If those legislatures can, with the support of the Supreme Court, say, ah, the Constitution makes us the key decision makers, no matter what the state Constitution says, no matter what state Supreme Court says, well, then that could be absolutely decisive in the 2024 election for the Republican nominee, be he... Ron DeSantis, be he Mike Pence, or be he Donald Trump. Now, I think that part of what we're thinking about here is is this notion of an unfettered state legislature, one unfettered by the Constitution, unfettered by judicial review, and so forth. And, and Independent state legislature, as if the state legislature just sort of floats above everything. And, and maybe I should tell the, the audience just a little bit more about what the Pennsylvania issue was, just so they can, they can begin to sort of see the kinds of issues that might arise. So here's what happened in Pennsylvania. Long before the election, the Pennsylvania legislature had come up with some rules about absentee ballots. Fine. And they said they're due on election day. They have to be not just postmarked, but, but delivered on election day. Okay, fine. And they have to have some rules, and those seem sensible enough. Many months before the election, as COVID was surging, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court jumped in. And they said, listen, our state constitution says that there's a right to vote. It's really important. And in order to protect the right to vote, we're going to tweak this state statutory regime. And, and the state statutory regime isn't just for presidential ballots. It's for U.S. Senate elections and state legislative elections and local government elections, dog catcher elections, because they hold one election for, for all these different races. And months before November... The state Supreme Court jumped in and said, okay, there's the state statute, but we have to construe it in the light of our state constitution, which is the supreme law of Pennsylvania, apart from the federal constitution, and it, it's supreme over the state legislature, and that state constitution talks about a right to vote and, and to protect that. And there's a lot of case law in Pennsylvania saying that's important and serious. Here's the problem with the absentee voting um, rule. Suppose someone's planning to, to vote on election day, fine, in person, but then one or two days before they get COVID or they get, or there's an outbreak of COVID or they've been exposed to someone who has COVID and, and told they're supposed to be quarantining or isolating or all the rest. You don't want them to show up at the polling place in person on election day. And even if they don't show up, well, then they've lost their vote because it's too late to send the thing in. If they send it in and it takes two days to be delivered, it may not arrive by election day, 8 p.m. So now they've lost their vote. 
even if, and that's bad enough, but other people might be worried that some folks won't do that. They're going to show up at the ballot even though they're, you know, symptomatic and, and uh, with full, full viral load and, and spewing and you're standing in close quarters, you know, in, in some uh, building while you're, you're, you're waiting to vote. And, and so they may not vote just because they're deterred by the possibility of getting COVID when they do vote. So in order to avoid all these complications, months before the election, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court tweaked the rules and said, we're going to reinterpret the statute in light of the state constitutional provision that we should try to encourage everyone to vote if possible. And, and this is just not something you can plan in advance. You, you were planning to vote in person, and all of a sudden, two days before, there's a COVID outbreak, or you, you, you get your, your diagnosis, or you, you come down with symptoms. So the state Supreme Court said, it will be okay, and we're going to count absentee votes if they're postmarked by 8 p.m. on election day, and if they um, arrive within three days. We can't, you know, keep it open forever. So they, got, they came up with a rule, you got to come, it's got to arrive by Friday or something, but post, we changed it to, it has to be delivered by 8 p.m., a close of polls on Tuesday, to it has to be postmarked. 8 p.m. Um, uh, on Tuesday, because even if you're symptomatic or something, you can give it to someone else who can put it in the mailbox for you. Now, that was a perfectly sensible ruling, um, but the people who opposed to it waited until late October to bring it to the court, and the court was in perilously close to actually agreeing to hear that case. And Kavanaugh, in a case from Michigan, excuse me, a case from Wisconsin on October 26th, had seemed to signal that he was very open to this, citing Bush versus Gore, the, the, the Bush versus Gore uh, concurrence uh, of Thomas and the other two who joined that were Justice Scalia and, and Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist. But then two days later, when the Pennsylvania case come up, came up, uh, Kavanaugh did not provide a fourth vote to hear the case. And in between, you know, Amar, Amar, and Katyal wrote this op-ed in the New York Times saying this was, it would be disastrous, and the Supreme Court intervention would be lawless in the extreme, and Amy Coney Barrett is sworn in. Lots of stuff going on. And, and unless you're just completely inside baseball, you know, watching these really seemingly, you know, uh, microscopic moves, you may have had no idea just how close we came to a reenactment of Bush versus Gore, this time from Pennsylvania and some other states rather than Florida. So the, basically the court was, if the court was going to hear it, they were going to hear whether or not the, Supreme, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court just had no business reviewing it, or it wouldn't so much have been about whether the it was a reasonable ruling, but whether or not they had any right to make any ruling. And the court to do this at the 11th hour, too, because now there's some people who actually were planning to to actually submit their absentee ballots, but they were going to submit them, let's say, on Monday or Tuesday. They had made arrangements. Maybe this was going to throw a big monkey wrench into everything. And, of course, the uh, there were so many election litigations going on at the time. You could yep. see, you know, that the, the public... You know, this could have gotten buried, you know, in, in an avalanche of, of irrelevant and stupid, you know, le- legislation or some that that was was meaningful. But um, but and, and not just so in Pennsylvania, in the- other states getting into the action and spiraling out of control, a three ring circus. OK, so I, I understand that this is that this is bad, you know, to take the, the state Supreme Court out of the loop. But why is it that this is consistently an issue that the Republicans are on one side and the Democrats are on the other side. I mean, wh- why is it that Republicans like state legislatures and don't like state Supreme Court, Supremes Court, Supreme Courts, um, and uh, and and Democrats do? I mean, what's uh, or is it a partisan issue? It is, and our audience should be aware or just be reminded that I'm a political science professor and also a law professor, but. Ultimately, my view of the law is different than my own political leanings. I hope people um, understand that, having heard my our earlier episodes on uh, abortion and Roe and Dobbs. He, um, in that situation, Andy, as you keep reminding me, because you're my friend and you want the audience to, to hear this, because they, unless they misunderstand my views, my views are legally Roe was 
bad. It was embarrassing. It was not legally well grounded, even though I happened to basically be sympathetic to the the policy outcome of a strong protection of women's reproductive choices. Now, here, I think my political views and my legal views are in alignment. Just like I thought Roe was an embarrassment, I've always thought, always, that Bush versus Gore was a disgrace, a shonda. Um, I, I wrote that the week of the decision in the L.A. Times. Ten years later, I gave a lecture at the University of Florida just attacking Bush versus Gore up and down and sideways. I still think that, okay? So I thought Roe was wrong, and I think Bush versus Gore is wrong. And Elaine, if you're just a present, present, present person, you, you just have to say, well, suck it up. But I'm not a present, present, present person. If the precedent is wrong, it should be called out as wrong and not extended an inch and actually ideally dismantled, and, which is what the Warren Court did to pre-Warren Court precedent, which is what the New Deal Court did to Lochner era precedent, which is what Brown versus Board of Education did to Plessy versus Ferguson, which is what the Barnett case did to the Gobitis decision on flag salutes. But here, my sharp critique legally of Bush versus Gore, I admit, actually tends to line up with my politics. There's a reason, Andy, that Republicans, conservatives tend to want to empower state legislatures. And that's because state legislatures are going to be more red than the country as a whole, on average. Um, Why is that? Let's take, for example, um, it has to do with single-member districts and geographic cluster, urban clustering. Some people call that just a little too quickly and casually and sloppily. It's all about gerrymandering or gerrymandering. Uh, Elbridge Gerry was a founding figure, an early... Um, he was at the Philadelphia Convention, although he, he voted against the Constitution in Philadelphia, and then he became vice president under... Madison. In a nutshell, I'll give you just a striking fact, and then I'll give you the math behind it, wearing my political science hat. There are 435 congressional districts, um, house districts. They're geographically defined. Um, Each district elects one member of the House of Representatives. Majority is 218 out of 435. Barack Obama beats Mitt Romney by about five percentage points nationally. And he doesn't even carry, he doesn't even get a majority in 200 congressional districts. He wins 190-some congressional districts, I think. Remember, 218 would just be kind of, you know, break even. And he wins nationally by five points. Here's why that's so. And it's not just because Republicans have cheated everywhere. That might, Republican gerrymandering accounts for maybe 20% of the phenomenon they're going to describe. Most of it is, as I said, urban clustering. Take a state, just imagine a state that has two or three big cities and the rest of the state is mainly countryside. So New York State has New York City and Buffalo and Albany. Or Pennsylvania has Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia um, maybe Harrisburg, I don't know. Um, Illinois has Chicago and Springfield and Champaign-Urbana or something like that. State that a few big cities, uh, but then countryside. In the cities, forty percent of the state's residents live in the cities, and sixty percent live elsewhere. But in those cities, Democrats overwhelmingly reside. They cluster. Eighty percent of city dwellers are going to vote Democrat. Let's just imagine. And elsewhere, the Democrats are, are kind of scattered and, and, and dispersed. They're, they're, they're not uncommon, but they're not the majority. Let's imagine that they're 40% um, in, in the countryside and Republicans are 60%. Now, if you do the math in your head, the fundamental problem is the Democrats are winning very, very big in the cities, but that means they're actually kind of wasting, from a certain point of view, some of their vote. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about wasting, wasted votes in just a second. But if you do the math, so Republican, let's imagine the Democrats win 80% of the city vote. The city vote is 40% of the state, so 0.8 times 0.4, that's 32% of the state overall. Now, the Democrats are also winning 40% of the rest, 0.4, and the rest is 60%, 0.4 times 0.6, that's 24%. You add it to 32%, 
wow, the Democrats are doing very well statewide. They're winning 56% to the Republicans, 44%. That's, that's, that's actually a pretty comfortable majority. But how many seats are the Democrats winning, uh, let's say congressional districts or state legislative seats? Well, they're winning basically 40% and they're losing 60%. They're winning the 40% overwhelmingly. They're losing the 60% sort of less overwhelmingly. They're wasting a lot. Democrats have a majority of the state, and Republicans have 60% of the the legislative districts, um, let's say, in the state legislature. Now, I told you I was going to explain what political scientists mean by a wasted vote. Here's where a wasted vote is. It's a technical political science term a vote that goes to a candidate who loses. If, if a district is 52-48, 48% went to the loser, you know, it might have been, it, it, it would have been the same if it had been zero. Those 48, you know, were just all wasted. And a wasted vote is also any v- votes that you get above and beyond what you actually needed to get elected. So just, you know, to simplify slightly, if you win 80 to 20 well, 29 of those 80 votes were kind of wasted. You only needed to win 51-49. And, and those 29 votes that were excessive, if, if they had been put in, to use in some other district, they could have helped you or your party win in some other district. So, so wasted votes are uh, votes be above what you need for the margin of victory, above 51%, and votes that go to a loser. Now, Democrats are wasting more votes because they actually are winning overwhelmingly in the cities. And it's not just because the Republicans have drawn funky district lines. And this, by the way, urban clustering means that urban parties are underrepresented in legislatures, not just in the United States, but in Britain, in New Zealand, in places where you have geographic single-member districting and very, very, very um, kind of strong density of the liberal party in the big cities. What do you mean by single-member districting? In America, ever since the 1840, the House actually has to be divided. Each state is divided into a certain number of geographic districts, and each one picks one member of the House of Representatives. It's not, for example, an at-large system in which you vote statewide. If you vote a state, let's take Pennsylvania. Uh, let's imagine that Pennsylvania, just to keep the math easy, has... 18 House members. It's actually lost a couple, but it used to have 18. So if you voted just statewide, the Democrats, 56%, they'd get all 18. Okay, but if you vote single-member districts by congressional district, oh, maybe actually it's going to be 9 and 9. It's possible, actually, that uh, the Republicans will, will, will win more districts. In theory, you could win a whole state by just winning overwhelmingly in one district and losing all the other districts just by, by a hair. Or you um, could assign the, the representatives proportionate to the vote. So if you got 56% of the vote, you get 56% of the And that's how Germany does it. But if you're going to do that, you're sometimes going to need to deviate a little bit from the geographic uh, allocation. You're going to have to vote for parties and not just individuals and then tally up how many votes the party got jurisdiction-wide. And, um, and, and Germany does it that way. And, and, and New Zealand actually has moved toward proportional representation systems. In Ireland, there's a thing called the hair system. There are different ways of doing what's called PR, proportional representation. But yes, they try to guarantee or come close to guaranteeing that the percentage of seats in the legislature that a party has correspond pretty closely to the percentage of votes in the jurisdiction that the party won. But we don't, there's no guarantee of that, you know, given what I call geographically defined single-member districts. Each House district elects one and only one member of the House of Representatives, rather than California voting as a, as a block for 43 congresspersons or 45 or whatever, and, and, and Pennsylvania for all 18, or I think now it's down to 16 or something. So you wind up with a disproportionate representation for... Uh, Republicans um, in state legislatures. Yes, which would they're, uh, so so we, uh, so, so they're going to so Republicans are going to want to read the Constitution in ways that give the, the state legislature um, uh, more power. We Democrats um, are going to want to um, read the Constitution in ways that give the the voters kind of more power, one person, one vote, and 
ideologically, we Democrats believe in voter equality, one person, one vote, and Republicans believe in all sorts of other principles, including tradition and, 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 and filtering. So um, they like the Electoral College, maybe just in principle, because it's, it's old or something. And in addition, yeah, Democrats, of course, in today's world, have won the national popular vote seven out of eight times. Now, of course, had the rules been uh, in place that you have to, that the game is winning the national popular vote, each candidate over the last you know thirty years would have pursued a slightly different strategy. So we can't be sure that the that the, the count would have been the same. But Democrats tend to think, oh, one person, one vote. We like the voters, and Republicans think, oh, we like the state legislators. So is this a coincidence? It's just, in this case, a kind of an, an alignment. Now, Amar comes in, and Amar says, look, I'm going to tell you what the Constitution actually really says. If it favors my party, okay, good. If it doesn't favor my party, that's a Roe versus Wade. So much the worse for my party, because a law, law is not supposed to be political or partisan. In theory, it's, a, it's supposed to be law. Now, what, what happened to one person, one vote? Well, the districts are equal-sized in my hypotheticals. So when I said, let's say there's 60 rural seats and 40 urban seats, each one of those has equal population, and that, that's one idea of one person, one vote. And another idea is you just vote um, statewide for governor or for U.S. senator. But when you have districting, the one person, one vote idea is the district should be equal size. Now, there's still a trick there because what do we mean by size? What's the denominator? What needs to be equal? There are at least six possibilities, maybe more. Total population, legal population, so-called illegal aliens, undocumented persons wouldn't be counted in that second version. Citizen population, now you're not even counting permanent resident aliens and, uh, and the like. Eligible voters, registered voters, voters at the the last election. Those are six different possible denominators. Um, And the Supreme Court's jurisprudence hasn't always been crystal clear. I I don't want to get into some details. There's a case called Evenwell versus Abbott and some other things. But the the court hasn't always been clear about what what has to be equal, but but basically something has to be equal. And and how equal? Well, when it comes to congressional delegations within 1%, the districts have to be basically within 1% of each other in size, whatever the denominator is that you use. For state legislative election, I think you have a margin of error of 10% or something under court doctrine. How often do you have to redraw the lines because even if it's perfectly equal as of a, sing- a, a date, it's going to start unraveling the next day. People die, people come of age, people move in, people move out. So you have to do it every 10 years. You can do it more often. You're allowed to do it more often, but you have to do it at least every 10 years, which is when we have a census. Okay. And the census isn't now, you see, just about allocating house seats between the different states but it's also about coming up with districting rules within each state, both for the 435 House members and for the state legislators, both in the state House and the state Senate. 49 of the 50 states are bicameral, Nebraska is not. Okay, well, so far we've told you that we've sounded the alarm, and then we told you that a little bit about a case where the Pennsylvania legislature did want, didn't want people to be able to have an absentee ballot if it if it got there after election day, and the Supreme Court felt otherwise in uh, in Pennsylvania. Well, yeah, that sounds like the Supreme Court was in the right, but doesn't sound like that big a deal when you come right down to it that it's the end of the republic. Then we talked about Bush versus Gore, but that was twenty two years ago, and we're, and and that, and we're not uh, reviewing a close presidential election right now. So what exact, why exactly should we be worried about all this as we go into 2024? What, what are some things that could happen that actually are alarming and are on the radar? Well, let's just go back to um, 2020, and then I'll tell you about 2024. So in 2020, if the Supreme Court had jumped in right before the election and smacked down the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, first of all, there would have been confusion and chaos about absentee balloting and maybe not just in Pennsylvania, but in some other states where state Supreme Courts perhaps may have um, also been involved, maybe not on the absentee ballot issue, but on other issues. But a resounding 
affirmation of the independent state legislature idea that three justices in Bush versus Gore really did sign on to, Rehnquist, Galea, and Thomas, uh, any ringing reaffirmation of Bush versus Gore might have emboldened state legislatures to jump in a second time after the election in all sorts of ways, in just the ways that John Eastman and Ted Cruz were, um, you know, trying to, and we're seeing all these emails, Jenny Thomas, you know, trying to encourage state legislatures to jump back into the game after election day, because on, you know, on a certain theory of independent state legislature doctrine on steroids, oh, it's the state legislature that decides, not the Supreme state Supreme Court or the state election officials. Um, so what does okay. that mean, jump back in? Give me an example of what something that they, that they might have done. Well, they might have said, who knows who really won um, Georgia? We, um, it's within the margin of error, so we, the Georgia, so we're not going to leave it up to the, the state courts uh, applying um, under the state constitution um, and the state election officials. We, the state legislature of Georgia, are going to give uh, create a, a new slate of electors and award them to Donald Trump. We, the state legislature of Arizona, are going to do this. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. That's what I mean. Okay. So now when we look ahead to 2020... And that's what John Eastman was trying to do, you see, and Ted Cruz. Okay. And when we look ahead to 2024, you've identified four different scenarios that that we need to specifically be concerned about. Right. Because here's my theory in a nutshell. We'll g- give you all the technicalities, and, and probably Andy will need to do a couple of episodes on, on, on this. But, um, but my view is state legislatures can't do whatever the heck they want. They are constrained by state constitutions. And they, they don't f- float freely above and outside their state constitutions any more than Congress operates outside its constitution, the federal constitution. And state Supreme Courts traditionally are the last word on the meaning of state law, including state constitutions. And by the way, state Supreme Courts are typically not quite picked in malapportioned or in these gerrymandered ways. Sometimes many of them are picked in in statewide elections, you see. So they're they're more likely to be blue-ish. The state constitution may be more likely to be bluish. A state has initiative, a referendum, a recall, uh, uh, initiative, a referendum, excuse me, um, in, in which the state constitution itself is the product of populist input, one person, one vote, that's not gerrymandered or malapportioned in any way. So here are the four things that I'm worried about for 2024. And the key states to remind our audience are presidentially bluish, at least by um, track record, but red-ish in their likely um, state legislative composition. Um, Six or seven states include Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, uh, Virginia. Those are the states that I'm really focused on. North Carolina is another one that theoretically could be. It hasn't been... You know, you know, we we got to make it presidentially well, blue. But, you I know, say, the governor as a Democrat. is a Democrat, and you know, yeah. so yeah. But but um, and Barack Obama won it his first time, but he mm-hmm. didn't win it the second time, and then Hillary lost, and then Biden lost. We've lost the last three there, and I say we because I'm I've always been honest with my audience. I happen to be a Democrat, but I hope I have some some credibility with them because my position on Roe versus Wade is not particularly popular among Democrats, but it is my legal position and always has been for. 30 years. Okay. So here are the things that I'm really, really worried about for 2024. And I'm really worried about these things, not because a Republican might win. There are lots of Republicans I, can, I could sleep easily with. But the one Republican that would terrify me is Donald Trump. And he is still, if not the odds-on favorite to win the Republican nomination. He's still probably the favorite, even if not the odds-on favorite. Now, maybe it'll be DeSantis. I, you know, maybe it'll be Tom Cotton. Maybe it'll, it'll be Mike Pence. Who knows? But So the thing that keeps me up at night is Donald Trump returning to power because he doesn't accept the legitimacy of, of uh, elections that he lost because he doesn't believe in the rule of law because he's a, a, a demagogue and, and tyrannical. Um, that's my view. You, you don't have to share that audience, but I'm telling you why I'm particularly um, worried. Here are the things that these state legislatures might try to do. One, 
say, elections are frauds. Um, all these illegals are voting. I'm, I, I'm using their language, okay? They, they, they talk about illegals and stuff. You know, illegals are voting. They're carting them in from, from wherever on buses. And, and all, there's massive fraud going on. Yeah, we can't prove it, but we, we know what's going on because we lost. And we, it couldn't be that we lost a fair election. So, so it has to be because there's fraud. So we, the legislature of Wisconsin, are going to pick the electors ourselves because we can be sure that that won't be fraudulent, okay? And the Constitution lets us do that under independent state legislature theory. So that's the first thing they'll say. And I'm going to say, oh, it's true that um, at the founding, lots of state legislatures did pick electors themselves, but they're allowed to, so they would be allowed to do that if and only if the state constitution allowed that. But there are state constitutions that reserve the right to the people of the state to pick electors. Like, for example, the, I, I know the uh, Colorado Constitution says that. There are others that might, and, and even if they don't say so explicitly, they may be sensibly and properly construed to mean that by their state Supreme Courts. So under independent state legislature theory, who cares what the state Constitution says? Who cares what the state Supreme Court says? You know, we decide, and, and, and by a law in advance of election day, we're, we're not even going to let the voters vote. Um, and by the way, no state has done that since basically, um, apart from um, South Carolina, all the states basically since 1832 have let their, the people vote. South Carolina, still, the legislature kept picking until 1860. It was the only state. And it had to do with slavery um, and, um, and malapportionment created by slavery. But, okay, that's the first scenario. Second scenario, okay, we will let the people of Pennsylvania vote. But because actually there's a lot of voter fraud, blah, 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 and, and we don't trust judges, and we don't trust election officials, and we don't trust Brian Kemp and the governor and, the, and Raffsenberger and the officials, um, the civil service officials in Michigan or Georgia or Pennsylvania or whatever, we, the legislature, are going to decide who really won, especially if it's closer within a margin of error. And notwithstanding that state constitutions, many of them, I, I know, for example, the Pen, Pennsylvania state constitution explicitly say that judges decide contested election issues, judges and other election officials, not state legislatures. State legislatures generally make laws. They don't actually adjudicate disputes that arise under those laws under separation of powers within each state. That's up to executive and judicial officials to actually implement the laws that the legislature has adopted in advance. But I'm worried about that second possibility. And they're going to say ISL, Independent State Legislature. Third thing they're going to say is, if it's close, if it's within the margin of error after on election day, gee, um, we're going to jump back in and not judge who really won, um, but just pick the electors ourselves after the, after, um, uh, because it was within the margin of error and it was a failed election and we're going to jump back in. And we're the independent state legislature. Now that is not just problematic because of state constitutions, but also there's a federal statute that basically says state legislatures can't easily jump, shouldn't be allowed to jump in and change the rules after election day. Um, and they say state legislature can jump in if it's a failed election. But Amar says a failed election doesn't mean one that's really close, where we have to keep counting and recounting even after midnight on election day. A failed election where a legislature could jump back in is one in which no matter how much we counted and recounted, it would never we'd never get an actionable result because, for example, the state law before the election says you need a majority of, of popular votes, and no one's going to have a majority. It's going to be, you know, uh, because there was um, a spoiler, a three-way race or something, and so one person got 46%, and one person got 45%, and someone else got 8%. Well, you can keep recounting forever, and you're never going to get to 50%. So, so that is a failed election, but I have a narrow view of failed elections. That's a matter of how you read a congressional statute, the Electoral Count Act, or, and, 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 and related statutes. Finally, state legislature might say, ah, we're not going to do in advance. We're not going to do winner-take-all. Um, we're going to follow the, ma the Maine and Nebraska model and actually divide up our electoral votes in, in a certain way based on um, congressional districts or proportionality or something like that. 
and ordinarily I say, well, yeah, they actually, the Constitution does give state legislatures lots of choice, but maybe that's inconsistent with a constitutional, a state constitutional rule, because for reasons that our audience should now understand, it is possible that a party could actually get more votes overall in the state and yet lose a majority of congressional districts in that state. And, and that seems a violation of kind of the majority rule principle of a, of a certain sort. You say, well, what about Maine? What about Nebraska? Don't they actually deviate from winner-take-all? Yes, they do. Those two states are guaranteed mathematically that winner takes most. Here's why. Here's how it works in Maine and Nebraska. In every other state, basically, you get more uh, popular votes, you win all the electoral votes. That's how it works. And if it's close, you've got to keep counting and recounting. That's Florida 2000. And the courts and the election officials sort of ultimately certify everything. And the legislature stays the heck out. That's the standard way in which it, it should be done. Now... In Maine and Nebraska, even if you win the state, you don't get all the electoral votes. You are guaranteed you get only the electoral votes of the congressional districts you carried. And you get an extra two, a bonus for winning the state, two electoral votes. Because how many electoral votes does each state have? The number of House members plus the number of senators. That's what the Constitution says. So, so every state, you get two electors for your two senators and then an additional elector for every house district you have and every state has to have at least one, even Wyoming. Okay, so Maine, just to repeat, and Nebraska say if you win the state, you automatically get a bonus of two for the two senators who are elected statewide for winning the state statewide and you get one elector for each congressional district that you carry presidentially. Okay. So Maine has two congressional districts. That means it has four electoral votes, District 1, District 2, and two for the senators. If you win Maine, you are mathematically guaranteed to have won at least one of the two districts. You can't lose both districts and carry Maine. You have to win at least one. So you're going to get at least three, that, that district that you won, plus the state as a whole, maybe four. So it's winner take most. Now let's take Nebraska. It has three congressional house districts. You have to win. If you win the state, you get two for winning the state, two senators, and you have to have won at least one district. You can't win the state and lose all three districts. So you're going to get at least three, maybe four, maybe five. It's still guaranteed to be win or take most. But now let's take California. Let's imagine, just to make the math easy, California has, just to make it easy, 50 electoral votes two for the senators and 48 congressional districts. It's, it's actually a little below 50, but just we'll simplify. How many, how many electoral votes are you guaranteed to have? Only three. It's possible mathematically that you win the state, so you get two, and you won one district, 99 to one, and you lost every other congressional district by three votes or whatever. Well, in that scenario, you won the state by hypothesis, and you won one district overwhelmingly, so you get that. So you won the state, and you get three electoral votes, and the other person gets 47. Well, you know, congratulations. And, and that mathematical reality might be thought by a state Supreme Court to be in tension with certain state constitutional principles such that they might say that's unconstitutional under a state constitution. But... If the under independent state legislature doctrine, if the, if the legislature just floats outside and above its state constitution, well, then it can do it. And now you see, audience, why this is going to matter tremendously for 2024, and why I'm like a dog. Vic and I are like dogs with a bone. And we'll talk about this, I think, in the next episode. The Supreme Court right now is in the process of deciding whether to hear a case out of North Carolina where the North Carolina Supreme Court weighed in in a big way, having to do with congressional districting election, not presidential. ISL ideology, independent state leg legislature doctrine, and we'll give, we'll give the audience the, the technical details next time, is not just about presidential elections every four years under Article 2, 
but also about congressional elections every two years under Article One. And, and so they're, they're, they're little different flavors and versions of ISL, but it's about not just, con, con, to repeat, presidential elections, but also congressional elections. And there's a case right now, Neil Katyal has actually file, filed a, a brief in the last f- um, few days citing Amar and Amar uh, on this issue. And actually, when I say that, Andy, don't know if we've told our audience a lot about this Amar and Amar piece. No, not in this episode. We haven't, no. You have mentioned that it's been available on SSRN um, in previous episodes. And tell them what SSRN is. It's basically a place where you where authors can put, uh, it's kind of an open source version of, of academia, where you can post work in ne- not final form or in final form um, and get comments and, and uh, make it available for free to people. Yeah, it's immediate self-publishing to get ideas out there in the world. Um, and Vic and I have a piece. It's coming out in the Supreme Court Review, which is a very um, well-respected faculty-edited journal out of the University of Chicago. Every year it publishes a hardbound volume with a dozen or so articles by typically prominent law professors about the previous term of the Supreme Court. So this which is coming out in the next couple of weeks. This is an essay that we wrote about how the court last term, that the biggest thing that happened at the Supreme Court was the dog that didn't bark, the bullet that was dodged, a thing that could have happened but didn't. They could have tried to revive um, certain aspects of Bush versus Gore, and thank goodness they didn't. But there was a week in which it seemed as that they were really coming, that they came close to it. It was the week of October 26 and 28. The article is coming out, and it focuses, at first look, on Bush versus Gore. Now, you've mentioned a few times that this ISL theory or you know ISL discussion, uh, I've been told by others, do not call it ISL doctrine, which you called it once, but we'll, yes. we'll, we'll let you get away with that. Um, so it comes out of here, but you've said that only three justices... Uh, Rehnquist, Scalia, and Thomas actually signed on to, I guess it was a concurrence um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that put, put this forth. So mm-hmm. then why, why is Bush versus Gore? They didn't even decide this. They so- didn't. But conservatives have been taught that that was the best argument for Bush versus Gore, the principled argument. Conservatives have poo-pooed the other argument in Bush versus Gore that there was violation of equal protection because there were uneven voting standards. That's basically what Kennedy and O'Connor believed. They, they didn't put their names on it, but it was a per curiam opinion. And what Souter actually also believed, but he thought even though there were equal protection problems, the recount should continue after a proper remand with kind of stricter standards for preserving uniformity. Now, why do I mention those three? Those are the three who flaked in the Casey decision. They were, they were the ones who didn't go along with overruling Roe versus Wade, and hardcore conservatives, you see, are very skeptical of O'Connor and Kennedy and Souter. Now, I think independently the equal protection argument was a pile of poo. It, it, um, I, I, I'll talk about that a little bit more maybe in the next episode, but I didn't think it was a very plausible, just like I didn't think Bush versus, excuse me, um, uh, Roe versus Wade was very plausible, okay? See, I have standards, and I'm going to apply them against the conservatives, and I'm going to apply them against the liberals. And the conservatives kind of made up all sorts of substantive, uh, the liberals, excuse me, made up all sorts of substantive due process stuff in the Roe line of cases, and here it was the conservatives making up some weird equal protection ideas that just because there wasn't absolute perfect uniformity down to the fifth decimal point of Chad standards, that somehow it was an unconstitutional recount. And that can't be right because there were problems in the underlying count before we even began the recount that were of much greater magnitude than than the recount issues. And, And the problems in the underlying election actually had a racial bias to them, it seemed to me. And the recount was actually trying to compensate for some of the flaws in the initial count. But I'll go into all that in, in more detail. But, but basically, two justices out of the five who basically said the recount must end. These are five Republican-appointed justices. 
and Bush versus Gore said the recount must end and George W. Bush must win. That's what they said. And that looks stinky to me in a whole bunch of different ways. By the way, they shouldn't have even been involved in the case. It's Congress's call, not the vice president's, but Congress's call. But so I said, oh, they shouldn't have even been involved. And the equal protection argument was bogus. And I said all this the, the week of, of, of the decision. Conservatives actually kind of agree with me, truth be told. Just as some honest liberals agree with me on, on Roe versus Wade, that's not very persuasive. So deep down, a bunch of conservatives said, okay, yeah, the equal protection argument wasn't so good. Oh, but there, there's, there's this utterly different and principled argument, independent state legislature ideology, and that was the argument of Rehnquist and Scalia and Thomas, and their argument was the Florida Supreme Court had no business jumping in um, and uh, kind of um, deviating in any way from the rules that the legislature um, of Florida had laid down because the Florida Supreme Court was trying to make sure that every vote counted where you could deduce an intent of the voter, even though the state statute didn't quite say that. The Florida Supreme Court construed that state statute in the light of broader right-to-vote principles under the state constitution. And I think they were right in doing so, and they were doing, um, they were construing these Florida statutes the same way that they construed lots of previous Florida voting statutes and previous elections, all in the light of their state constitution. So they were doing exactly the right thing, in my view, and what they'd always done. But three justices, who I think were, you know, I'm, I'm not going to cast aspersions on their motivation, but three justices, I think deep down, truthfully had some difficulty with the equal protection argument, but thought, ah, Constitution says state legislatures should decide um, presidential election issues. The state Supreme Court seems to be jumping in. It doesn't seem to be merely construing the state statutes generated by the state legislature. It seems to be doing something else that seems fishy to us. So that's what three justices said. Now, in my view, those three justices were wrong because they didn't understand that state statutes and the state legislature all exist under state constitutions. But many generations of conservatives have apparently kind of been taught, oh, that was the principled argument in Bush versus Gore. Leading academics of a conservative sort who have said things supportive of Bush versus Gore include the eminent jurist Michael McConnell, whom I really respect a lot, but I have never bought this argument, and I attacked it. I've attacked it from day one, even before the, the Supreme um, the, the U.S. Supreme Court got involved, I was uh, trying to help some of the, 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 the litigants on this issue. Neil Katyal was actually involved in the case way back when. Why does this matter today? So, so yes, I've never gotten over Bush versus Gore, and I, I, I want to go back and explain why it's wrong, in part because the conservative, the younger generation of conservatives have actually been taught this is good stuff, and it's not. Who in particular am I talking about? I'm talking about Brett Kavanaugh, who was a young conservative lawyer down in Florida in 2000. I'm talking about Amy Coney Barrett, who was a young conservative lawyer down there in Florida in 2000. I'm talking about you know dozens upon dozens of thoughtful members of the Federal Society. I interact with them. I, I go to their events, and they've been taught oh, Clarence Thomas was right in this, and Antonin Scalia was right in this, and, and William Rehnquist was right in um, their principled defense of a federalist system in the Constitution that gives all this authority to independent state legislatures. And I say, no, completely wrong, and I'm an expert on this, I'm an originalist, but it begins with Elena moving beyond precedent, precedent, precedent to actually dis- to, to look and see if the precedent was really rightly decided whether that precedent is Roe versus Wade or Plessy versus Ferguson or Lochner versus New York or Bush versus Gore for that matter. Of course, in this case, it's not even a precedent because it's, you know, it, all it is is a, con, is a concurrence by mm-hmm. three justices. 
So it's not even a, a precedent, but, but it's note, out there. N- note that, for example, I said, oh, Griswold is rightly decided in a previous episode based on something that was actually mainly featured in a concurrence, um, Justice, the, the second Justice Harlan's um, focus on the novelty of the Connecticut law. So when you're thinking about precedents, sometimes you are looking at what the majority opinion says, but sometimes you're actually just trying to say, was it rightly decided on its facts? You know, even if it was a theory, um, in our in our last episode, I said, Roe on its facts actually is rightly decided insofar as the Texas statute should have been invalidated because no woman ever voted for it. It, it, it emerged from an era before women had the vote. And, and so on its, now the, the court didn't mention that at all. No justice did. But I said, oh, that's important. So here, at least three of the five justices did really emphasize this uh, independent state legislature idea. And to repeat, the academic, the conservative, the the most impressive uh, conservative academics who supported Bush versus Gore have really hung their hat on that, and the younger generation of of Federalist Society folks have been taught basically in their little sort of summer camps <laughs> that that this is the principled part of Bush versus Gore, and I say no part of Bush versus Gore was principled. It was bad, you know, all the way down, and. And I don't mean that the justices then cheated and they're bad human beings and all the rest. They were deciding things very quickly. It's easy for people to engage in motivated um, reasoning. Everyone back in 2000 thought the other side was cheating. But in my view, the Florida court wasn't cheating. The Florida Supreme Court was doing exactly what it had long done in many earlier iterations of voting rights cases, namely construe state statutes from the state legislature in light of broader state constitutional principles of right to vote. And just to repeat, when Florida holds an election, it's not, it's not just a presidential election. It's also at the same time, it's got all sorts of other races on, on the ballot for city council and state legislature and, and state senate. And whatever, for example, like absentee mail-in ballot rules you're going to have for state elections, they're also typically going to be the same for presidential elections. And the state Supreme Court has a, a very important role in, uh, typically under most state constitutions, in, in monitoring um, election integrity issues and trying to bring the statutes in line with state constitutional principles. That's what the Florida Supreme Court was doing. The U.S. Supreme Court didn't understand any of this because it just was saying, well, the state statute says X, and the state Supreme Court seems to be doing Y, and, and, the, and the U.S. Constitution says, oh, it's supposed to be the state legislatures decide. And that was about as actually deep as they got. And I understand that that was their initial take. It turns out, for reasons we're going to go into in more detail in the next episode, that take was completely wrong, completely Okay, so the the one thing that I get from what you just said is that you really don't like Bush versus Gore. <laughs> um, but I have to say that's a little bit of a whirlwind. I mean, because first of all, there was so many ideas there, um, but and they sounded right. But one of the great things about this article is that it doesn't just make say things that sound right; it proves that they're right. So I I propose that we you've now teased it out for our audience in terms of some of the things that you're going to prove. Although, uh, frankly, a lot of that stuff was more on the equal protection side and not as much on the independent state legislature side. So in our next episode, we've now identified for you the threat. We've thrown out some of the things that just, you know, make it such a mess, Bush versus Gore. Well, we're going to clean up the mess in the next episode. We're going to go through it piece by piece and show you without you're going to be left without any doubt that we need to find a new acronym for independent state legislature that has something to do with poo. <laughs> um, so Andy is very politely saying not just that ISL ideology is a bit of a mess, but that, that my presentation was a little too quick. And he's right. And, that's, and what we do on this podcast often is he slows me down and we walk through it more carefully. We'll walk you, the audience, through the relevant textual provisions. We gave you a bit of an overview today and, and especially identified the stakes and maybe the, the larger motivations at work. Um, but I don't believe that I've 
approved um, properly to my satisfaction, much less Andy's, because he's got the highest standards of all, um, that this um, ISL idea really uh, um, is preposterous. Um, I think by the end of next episode, I hope, Andy, with your help um, slowing me down a bit, that we can show that to the audience. Okay, and I hope the audience will, will bear with us on this because it actually is really important. As yeah, a, a, it could determine who, who wins, you know, the next election. <laughs> or <laughs> That's pretty have, darn important. Well, it's more than that because, because it's whether we will have a democracy. Yes, right? a republic if we can keep it. Yes. So until then. 